0: Fun Ideas Productions presents The Fun Ideas Podcast This is the Slow Poisoner
1: I come to you
2: from the future With these words of warning
1: It's a hot
0: this is mark arnold and welcome to fun ideas podcast number 97 this episode is sponsored by the fine folks at lee's comics attention comic book fans lee's comics of mountain view california has closed but here's the good news lee's comics ebay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics the majority of which are now on sale for half off Choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern-age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L E E S C O M I C S i n c period don't forget the period lee's comics is shipping daily with no delays new items daily mention the fun ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift
3: long title looking for the good times examining the monkey song one by one by michael Ventrella and mark arnold a book that examines each song gives lots of details about each song and our own personal opinions You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch.
0: Hey, Michael. It says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first
3: one enough? Not at all, Mark. Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Songs One by One, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, a timeline of the monkey's solo years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. you sold me. Have you sold them? Who, who,
0: who's them? Those people out there listening to this.
3: Well, listen to this. This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the prefab for Mickey, Davey, Peter, and Mike, the solo monkeys, plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last
0: cover, and this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? Announcer. Announcer? That's me. <clears throat> Get Headquartered, a timeline of the monkey solo years, written by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. It's available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today. Cool. I'm going to get one today. Today's guest has had two successful careers that of a successful guitarist and session man and touring with some of the greats in the music field, and also as a successful author, writing a number of books on Mad Magazine and EC Comics. Here he is, Grant Geisman. Okay, on the phone today I have Grant Geisman. How are you?
2: Good, Mark. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. And as I usually do on the Fun Ideas podcast, I just kind of start off by asking you this simple question, Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into EC Comics and music and all the other stuff that you do.
2: Well, that's so many answers there. <laughs> to take up the whole, whole uh, podcast with just the music question. But um, <laughs> if you want to know about music, I got into music um, because basically because when the Beatles came out, it was like, okay, that's it. I have to have a guitar. And I sort of badgered my parents for about six months, and I'm sure they thought, oh, you know, yeah, whatever, he'll outgrow this, but I never did. I kept bugging them, and finally, (laughs) uh, under the tree one Christmas, there was a little acoustic guitar, and that that got me going. Cool. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Now, did you take any formal training or lessons, or did it kind of come natural to you, or?
2: (laughs) I, I I did take lessons. I started right away, so... I actually always recommend that because you're not trying to reinvent the wheel all the time. Um, But, you know, I started out just playing out of, you know, like Alfred's (laughs) basic guitar book, volume one, you know, where you play like Mary Had a Little Lamb and these are the notes on the E string and these are the notes on the B string and whatever. Um, And I stuck with her for maybe, I don't know, six or nine months. So I actually was reading music right away, which was very, very helpful. But after, after that time, and she was a very sweet lady, um, it was like, you know what, I, I want to learn rock and roll, and this isn't it, you know. <laughs> um, so I found another guy at, at a, a place called Moyer Brothers Music in, in San Jose or Santa Clara, whatever city, and, and his name was Jeff Levin, and he was in a local band called People, and they had a kind of a, I think it was a nationwide kind of minor hit, with a, uh, a cover of a zombies tune called, I, I Love You. Mm. And people was a great San Jose band. They did, you know, covers of, of Beatles stuff and whatever, but they also wrote their own music. And Jeff just turned me on to like, you know, anything I wanted to learn. If I walked in and I said, I want to learn the lick on Over Under Sideways Down by the
1: Yardbirds. You go, <laughs>
2: oh, okay, that goes like this. You know, so it was fantastic. Wow. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a great place. Actually, San Jose was a great place to grow up in those days. Mm-hmm. Not only because of the music, but also because, for some reason, San Jose was a hotbed of comic collecting.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, all, all kinds of people came out of there, like Bud Plant, who I knew, you know, when I was a kid, and and uh, Dick Swan, and, you know, and they had some of the first comic shops that Bud Plant, right. and Dick Swan opened, and also Bob Sidebottom comic <laughs> shop. Yep. <laughs> um, so it was kind of an amazing place to grow up, really. And so I, I just sort of discovered, you see, I was already reading Mad Magazine, which I started reading in 1961. I think I was about eight years old. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I was into, you know, I knew the names of William Gaines and Nick Meglin and Al Feldstein and from the math head. And then uh, I was also buying the Mad Pocketbook. And one, uh, one time I went into Books Incorporated, which was in Town and Country Village, yep. <laughs> um, in San Jose, and next to the Mad Paperbacks was this little paperback called Tales from the Crypt. Huh. I was like, oh, what is, what is this? And I opened it up and I saw Wallace Wood, and, you know, and I immediately recognized that this was connected to Mad Magazine somehow. And I, you know, and so that was those books that came out after that as well. That was my first introduction to EC, and so uh, that's where it all went wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now you talk about growing up in San Jose, but you weren't born there. How did your family end up in San Jose, and where were you born again? I'm sorry.
2: Well, I was actually born in Berkeley, and okay. then I think I was about two, and somehow they moved in uh, to San Jose. And,
0: um, was, but, you know, was your dad uh, into yeah, some yeah, sort of I high tech, right. like IBM or something like that, or?
2: No, my dad, um, well, actually, my stepfather, but oh. they had an electrical con- contracting company in San Jose called Butcher Electric.
1: Oh. <laughs> and
2: I guess, I guess we moved, well, because my mom and my real father divorced when I was around two, oh. and then she married uh, Irving Butcher, who had Butcher Electric. So that must have been when they moved to San Jose.
0: Got it, okay. So
2: that's, that's how
0: that <laughs> Now, um, during your formative years of growing up and everything, did you stick with EC and MAD and comic books at the same time as doing music, or did one win out over the other?
2: No, I, I stuck with it. You know, actually, you know, the music thing was always number
0: one.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I studied in college, and, you know, I played in, um, you know, college, big high, high school and college jazz bands, and then on the weekends, um, I would play in, uh, you know, rock bands or we always had garage bands and we were always doing gigs and stuff so the music thing was always the most important and the comic collecting thing was just kind of the side thing that i really never gave up but it wasn't you know a lot of people didn't even know i i collected unless they were in that comic circle and it's kind of funny because um years ago when i first met some of the mad people through nick Meglin. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of guys, uh, mad people, live in in L.A., like Sergio or, uh, you know, Arnie Cogan or, mm-hmm. um, you know, just all kinds of people. A lot of the writers lived. in, Frank Jacobs was in L.A. Mm-hmm. So I met all those people, but they only knew me as the mad guy,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: you know, and they had no idea that I was a musician or any of that, yeah. So it, you know, it was kind of this weird schizophrenic split that I
0: had going on. Well, it was for me, too. I mean, I think I first heard about you, probably one of your books. I mean, I don't know if it was Collectively Mad or one of the, like, Tales of Terror or Foul Play, one of those three. And then I found out <laughs> because you and I have a common college. We w- both went to Deanza College, and I got yeah. this De Anza Jazz Ensemble album, and I'm flipping it over, and it says a uh, uh, guitar, Grant Geisman, I think, is what it said. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, so I contacted yeah. you. I said, are you the same guy? I mean, how many people are named Grant Geisman? Yeah. <laughs> and you go, well, yep.
2: <laughs> like... Well, the, the funny thing is, um, when I was working on Two and a Half Men, John Cryer is actually a big comic fan, and he collects Jack Kirby original art and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I remember at one of the Christmas parties, it was right after uh, Foul Play had come out, my book, Foul Play. Oh, yeah. And he comes up and he goes, "Hey, you know what's funny? There's two Grant Geismans because I just ordered a book called Foul Play. It's about Thomas and stuff. But anyway, I go, John, that's me. I'm, the, you know, I'm the same guy." Like,
0: wow, <laughs> <So, laughs> uh, well, I mean, you're just a man of multi talents. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, well, and
2: you know, I've been very, very lucky in my various <laughs> careers, and and uh, you know, it's funny. I, my mom always thought um, that the comic stuff and ECs and that, she always thought that was garbage. She she wanted me to be practicing guitar, and you know, which I did, of course, I did that too. But anytime I was looking at Mads or looking at old ECs or whatever, she'd go, are you reading that garbage again?
1: Yeah. Like, yeah. You know,
2: but I sort of got even with her because when my first book came out, it was like, ha ha, I told you this wasn't garbage.
1: You
2: know? <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, did you, as a comic collector, you collected everything, right? It wasn't just DCs and Mad, correct?
2: I mean, kind of. Like, when I started out as a kid, I, I read Mad magazines, but then the, the, the kids in the neighborhood also were showing me, you know, DC comics. So the first comics I bought was, like, you know, Superman and Batman right. and World's Finest and Justice League and stuff like that. Okay. So, um, And I bought a few marbles. I actually, I have a vivid memory of going to the drugstore and buying X-Men number one Ooh. and taking that off with me to summer camp for a couple of weeks. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's the stuff I read. But then once I got into the EC thing, I really, I mean, I have a few of the DC comics that I had as a kid that I got later. It's like, I remember having that, and I'll, I'll get that again. But really it was, you know, the EC and Mad stuff that I focused on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just curious about that because, yeah, you never talk about the other stuff, but, you know, you never find you find out. Oh, yeah, I'm a closet Archie fan, or something, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or like me, I mean, you know.
2: I love, I love that DC stuff. I mean, I love the Sheldon Moldoff Batman, you know, and that era, that you know, the early '60s stuff. I do, I do love that stuff, but it's you know, it kind of does. I love it because of nostalgia, right? But it pales in comparison to you know the EC
0: stuff. Well, do you think, in your opinion, the EC stuff is? strangely more relevant, even though it's older?
2: <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, EC did stuff that no other comic book company had done before, like, you know, doing uh, stories about social justice and vigilanteism and, and uh, you know, police brutality and all this kind of stuff, uh, stuff they called preachies
1: internally. Yeah. Because you're sort of preaching a message. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, absolutely,
2: if you're read a superman comic from 1961 it's just you know it's fluffy it's not <laughs> it doesn't have any right I and mean, it doesn't
0: have any teeth to it right yeah i, I totally see what you mean yeah it, was, yeah it was probably not until the early 70s where they made superman a little more relevant in that regards you yeah. know yeah or
2: the green lantern comic where they were um talking about drug abuse and stuff
0: right so, right there,
2: there were a couple there a couple issues they didn't put the comics code seal on because of
0: that. It was a big couple, you know. But, uh, <laughs> now, you said yeah. you found the Tales from the Crypt paperback. Uh, so had you seen an actual easy comic book, the what we call the floppies, <laughs> you know, actually in one of the old comic stores, or was it that your initiation? And you said, ah, 2 plus 2 equals 4, you know, and then there you're looking for the comics that these came, that paperback reprinted.
2: I think, yeah. I think that Tales from the Crypt paperback came out towards the end of 1964. Yeah. And then there were other ones, like Fault before. and Tales uh, of the Incredible, They came out in 65. And maybe as late as 66, there were the Bradbury ones. Right. Um, so really, I, had, I didn't see a real EC until around 1967 when... Um, well, a friend of mine, uh, his brother, was into comics. And um, he goes, well, if you want to buy old comics, you should write to this guy, Howard Rogowski. You know, he sells old comics. This is around 1967. And I sent away for his catalog. And, um, you know, they had all these mads, and I was interested in c- completing my mad collection. So at that time, I had, I don't know, a few dollars saved up, and I could have bought like one of the later MADs, and I showed my dad uh, this price of and and MAD number one was available for $15, mm. which, which was more than I had, but, and so my dad, bless his heart, and goes, well, if you if you were smart, you would save up a little and get the number one, <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, well, let me do that, so that was actually the first actual, you know, EP comic that I ever... And then I began buying more Mads and stuff uh, through Wilgoski. And one time he sent a note back saying that my choice that I wanted some Mad comic, I probably, was uh, not available. And, you know, wanted you to choose something else from one of my lists. So just on a whim, I'm like, okay, well, he has this Vault of Horror 32. I don't really know what it is, but it's got to be like those paperbacks that I saw
1: and had. (laughs)
2: So I sat for that, and that was the first actual, you know, DC horror comic that I ever saw. And that actually is still one of my favorite DC issues ever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's got, you know, it's got that great censored cover, like, what what is going on here? You know, this guy, it looks like he should have an ax through his head, but it's just a bunch of lines.
0: (laughs) He just has a very shiny head.
2: head. (laughs) (laughs) And then not too long after that, you know, maybe within in that same year or, or very soon after. Well, they have the San Jose flea market, or they had it at that time. And my mom and I would go down there, you know, early, and I would look for comics and records and stuff like that. And I bumped into somebody that goes, hey, you know, if you're into comics, these guys just opened up a little comic shop on in downtown San Jose. Uh, you know, you should go down there. And I wasn't driving a car or anything, so I think I rode my bike down to where I could get the bus to downtown San Jose. <laughs> and, and so I did that, and I met, you know, Bud Plant and Dick Swan and all these guys, because right. they had this little shop. And um, so then I started buying stuff from those guys. And, and it's you know, they were just high school kids like me, but somehow or other they had all these old comics. <laughs> and it
0: was very cool. So when do you think you or have you, <laughs> uh, When did, did you ever get a complete collection of ECs, and do you still have it, I guess is the question.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I've actually had a few
0: complete EC collections.
2: I've, you know, I've sold them off at various times, um, just for various reasons. One right. time I had, this about 20 years ago, I had kind of an existential crisis, and I felt like this stuff was all weighing me down. So I <laughs> sold off. A, a, you know a big chunk of the collection i had then but i still kept a core collection going but then this is like 20 years ago um and within about three months i was like i'm not happy without myself <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> so i got right back in and you know i haven't really sold anything yet.
0: okay because i think that's when i first met you I, I, I met you at one of the shows i think it was in san jose or you know and uh you had said, "Yeah, I sold all my mads," and I go, "What?" <laughs> you know, it's like, and then you know, I knew you were collecting again because you were working on other books, and you know, it's hard to do everything from memory, so I knew you need stuff. <laughs> you know, well, I, so,
2: as part of the core collection that I kept, I, I had made a set of bound volumes of Mad magazines and comics that I had personally bound, mm-hmm. um, and so I kept that stuff, and I kept all my reference material. And any anything that I had had personally bound, you know, which is quite a, a lot of stuff actually. So <laughs> I kept that as the core, and then I just started, you know, building out from that again.
1: Mm-hmm. I
2: did sell all my single E C S like 20 years ago, but I had sold E C S before. And then I always, part of it is, you know, it's fun. The thrill of the hunt is always fun,
0: right? You know.
2: So like, but you you really couldn't do that now. I mean, prices. Even 20 years ago, we're still such that you could you could affordably put a collection together. And, right you know, now, I don't I don't know if that's
0: right. Yeah, good. unless you're going for like the later issues, like uh, Impact or something like that, the New Direction title. Yeah, I mean, yeah but, no, the prices have
2: just gone so insane. Yeah, you know, it would be very difficult to do that. Yeah, you know? but I learned my lesson. I'm not doing that
0: again. <laughs> now. I have your book titles written down so I can just say them, but which one was first? And how did you get into being published? I mean, who found out you were a collector and writer and stuff?
2: Okay, so what happened was um, probably around 1987, you know, I had this collection. I, I had a lot of BCs. It wasn't a complete collection then. And I had all my math up to a certain point. You know, like, Probably after college, I stopped buying mads on the newsstand and stuff. Um, but I still kept all of my early collections. And maybe around, I don't know, probably 1987, I thought to myself, I'm going to complete this collection. And it would also be really fun to get all the stuff that I never had, like rare stuff like the mad straight jacket and mad jewelry <laughs> and all the stuff you kind of advertise in the magazine. Um, that that T-shirt and that kind of stuff. Mm. So I started putting ads in like antique journals and um, some in the comics buyer's guide and stuff that I was looking for the stuff. And really, at that time, there was maybe four or five other people that were seriously looking for the stuff. Um,
1: So not very many. So, you know, you could actually find stuff in those days.
2: (laughs) Um, So then, little by little, I amassed this huge collection of pretty rare stuff. And, well, I had done journalism in high school and I always enjoyed writing and um, I was pretty good at it. But the music thing was always so paramount that I never, you know, considered doing anything with writing. But somewhere in the back of my mind, it's like, I would love to do a book someday. I don't know what. (laughs) um, So anyway, I I had amassed this big collection and I had found this little network of a handful of people that were mad collectors and, and had stuff, you know. Um, so all of a sudden it dawned on me that there was a book sitting there waiting to be written that, that no one had ever done, which turned out to be Collectively Mad, which is essentially the history of mad and DC comics shown through their own collectible.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so
2: so I actually, uh, well, I had met Bill Gates and I had gone to, Uh, New York to play Carnegie Hall with David Benoit. I think this was in 1988, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, me and a buddy of mine that was in in the band, we got talking and he goes, you know what I always wanted to do is go down to Mad Magazine. It's like, wow, I would love to do that. So we just went down there (laughs) to 485 Madison (laughs) Avenue. And um, you know, we announced ourselves and, and they would give little tours and I think Joe Rayola took us on a little tour, but I had brought with me—I guess I knew we were going to do this. We must have talked about it in advance. So I brought um, some pictures of my collection, and I had the Mad World of William Lynn Gaines with me. And, he, and I showed these to Joe Rayola, and he goes, "Oh, well, you're not just you know readers; you're like true fans. You, know, you got to go in and meet Bill." <laughs> so he, he went in, and he goes, "You know, this, these guys have pictures of their stuff." And anyway, so I went in and met Bill. <laughs> and I told him, because he's usually a little wary of, of people. Oh, yeah. He didn't really know them. Uh, but I showed him my pictures, and I had the book, and I said, you know, um, I know your favorite deli is the Carnegie Deli. He goes, um, I've eaten at the Carnegie Deli, and now I'm here to play Carnegie Hall. And he thought that was funny.
1: <laughs> so, I was, so that sort
2: That's of funny. broke the eye. Yeah. You know? um, and so uh, not long after that, I, I started toying around with this idea for this book. And I wrote a letter to Gaines and I included some pictures of my stuff and kind of proposed this idea to him. And I really didn't, I didn't hear back. It was a few months.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And finally I said to my wife, well, you know, I guess Bill Gaines, you know, doesn't like my book idea. So that's the end of that. And she goes, what book idea? What are you talking about? And I just, because I hadn't told her, I just did oh, this whoop. on and So I told her and she's like, oh, well, you know. And so <laughs> A few days after that, I got a call from James's uh, publishing representative, and they said, oh, Bill, you know, he's gotten your letter, and he thinks it's a good idea, and he wants to see some sample chapters. And I was like, oh, crap.
1: <laughs>
2: now, <laughs> I have to, now I have to do this, because I don't want to disappoint Bill Gaines,
0: you know? Right.
2: So I, I stayed up very late, you know, for like a week of nights, burning the midnight oil, putting... Together, just to some sample chapters, of what I thought the book would be like,
1: mm-hmm. and I
2: got that together and I sent that in, and then not long after that, he, he gave me permission to shop the book around,
1: mm-hmm. you
2: know, um, and then Dennis Kitchen at Kitchen Sink Craft liked the idea, and then that was it. Oh, okay. That, that that became the first book, and then it took a while to get that book out because there was no money. <coughs> Essentially, there was no money, and. <laughs> and I think we went through three or four different designers that would start the project, and then, you know, I can't do this anymore. There's no money, you know, um, you know, you know, whatever. And so I, we found a couple other designers, and finally, I realized I need to figure out how to do this page layout stuff. Otherwise, this book is never going to happen. <laughs> so, um, so I bought a scanner, and I literally, in a little book, like you know quark express for dummies or
1: something
2: mm-hmm. um and i figured out you know autodidactically how to do this stuff and that that's how we got that book finished oh wow so but then that led to me you know kind of designing other books
0: right i just yeah. thought you had a background in it well wow, it's just funny that you just kind of said i got to figure this out and just <laughs> did it oh yeah
2: totally see of my pants yeah
0: you know? <laughs> um in that book, I might ask you this, but, you know, we're on a podcast now. I might ask you this before. It, was that your entire collection, or is that from different sources?
2: I mean, most of the stuff, or, or much of the stuff, let's say, was my own collection. But like I said, I had this little network of people. And if if they had something that I didn't have, they would happily photograph it for me and, and send me stuff, you know. Okay. Um, so I, I did have a fair amount of people uh, pitching in. Material that I didn't
0: have. Yeah. And I forgot, did you ever secure the Wally Cox gold bar cufflinks or no? No, I don't know where those are.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't know where.
0: <laughs> Because I, I, I think you said in the book that was the rarest item in the book, you know, because it's like nobody had them or something.
1: <laughs>
2: well, the, I think there were only two made. Yeah. I guess they actually sold one pair to a guy who had, you know, he had enough money, I think
0: there were a lot,
2: there were a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were both played. And so only one person ordered them, and then I guess Gaines ordered a set. So there were only two sets ever. And, um, you know, so yeah, that has to be the rarest thing.
0: <laughs> and technically, I suppose, it's not even a mad thing, since it doesn't even say mad on it. It just happened to be an ad, but, you
2: know. <laughs> um, well, if, if, you know, if it was... Advertised in that yeah. as something that they were offering, then that sort of count.
0: Right, right. Now, what do you think is still the hardest thing? Now, is it uh, besides that? I mean, is it the jewelry or like the straight jacket or other things?
2: Um, probably, there's a couple pieces of the jewelry that almost never surface, like the lapel pin. Never surfaces. Um, probably the the charm Brothers bracelet. After that,
1: necessarily.
2: <laughs> Surfaces the um, the cufflinks and the tie tack actually show up fairly regularly, so those must have been the, the biggest sellers.
0: Hmm. And um, when you got some of your things, like you know, like the straight jacket, I mean, since there weren't as many collectors in those days, I mean, uh, do you remember like what you paid for them and stuff like that? <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, the straight jacket I got in the trade—I oh. had these little Mego superhero dolls <laughs> that my mom bought me. The little—I still had them in the boxes and everything, but I didn't—I didn't really care about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, I think Dick's, my buddy Dick Swan, you know from yep. San Jose goes, i know a guy that has a straight jacket, and he might be willing to trade it or something. So I contacted the guy, and I and I and he, he, he said he was into superhero collectibles, and I was like, oh. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I have these Mego dolls, maybe you you're
1: interested. And he's like, oh, I'll trade you straight across for the straight jack. Wow. I'm like, okay.
0: <laughs> cool. So, <laughs> Did it have the padlock and everything?
2: Um, let's see. The first one I got, I don't think it, it didn't have a padlock.
0: Oh, okay.
1: <laughs>
2: but then That sort of went with the collection that I, you know, sold 20 years ago. But then I got another one after
1: that. Oh, okay.
2: And Just... basically, it was kind of good pulling the collection down because I had so much stuff and a lot of it I had just gotten so that it could be in the book. Right. But it wasn't stuff that I, you know, felt like I needed to have or it wasn't that important to me. So when I rebuilt the collection, I just got the things that I thought were cool and I sort of ignored the the other stuff that I didn't think was important.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah, the only reason I'm asking is because like the straight jacket in more recent years has kind of become one of those holy grail items. Although I've seen a few, I don't have one, but I've seen quite a few over the years, you know. But they're they're usually pricier than I want to pay for one, and they're nice, I suppose. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. But what do you do? Yeah, what do you do with it except smoke your pipe and put a big salami in the pocket? I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Exactly,
2: like in the ad. Yeah. That's funny.
0: So oh. but, you know,
2: the, thing, the thing is, right. the prices have come down on a lot of that stuff since eBay. That kind of leveled the playing field substantially. Because before that, you would just be—if you happened to stumble on something, right. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but when eBay came around, you know, stuff started surfacing. It still doesn't show up like the straight it doesn't show up all that often. But you know, they you know—they have popped up. But, you know, they used to sell for you know,
1: 2500
2: grand. 3000 Wow. <laughs> and, I, and I think the last few maybe have been more like in the $1,500. Right. Which is still a lot of money for something like that. But, you know, eBay, like I say, has kind of leveled things out.
0: Yeah. The old, the old item I tend to see a lot on eBay, so they must have sold well, is the Halloween costume. Seems like that gets on there quite a bit, besides, you know, general things like pinback buttons or something, you know.
1: Right.
2: Yeah, the, um, the, what you don't see, almost, almost never see, is the, what they called the Mardi Gras Halloween costume. It was a, a thing you put over your whole body. It was this big, giant kind of Mardi Gras-looking mask. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
2: and that version of the costume never surfaces. But the other one, which came in a box, you know, from college little costumes, you, that does surf.
0: Yeah, so I assume that must have sold well, that version, you know, <laughs> at least at the time. Yeah.
2: And the mardi gras one was so big you know like the littler one is in a box you can just throw that in the garage and it would it could survive Mm -hmm. but the mardi gras one was so big it didn't come in the box it's like what are you going to do with it after a while so i I imagine most of those just got tossed out
0: yeah do you have one now or is it
2: (laughs) yeah oh okay cool
0: (laughs) (laughs) um So what was your next book? I mean, uh, so Collectively Mad did well. I know you did like a deluxe edition and stuff like that. And did that that immediately lead to, I think, was it Tales of Terror or Foul Play was the next one?
2: Tales of Terror was the next. So after I did Collectively Mad, which I mentioned, it took quite a few years to get that out. I think it was like five years from when Bill said, yeah, let's do it and Titch and Think, you know, signed the contract and i think it literally took five years to get it out with all the design people quitting and (laughs) just stuff happening and Gaines saw the manuscript but he never he did not live to see the book published but the first thing we did was uh print up and have him sign these 500 tipping sheets for the limited edition
1: Ah, Um,
2: and so we had those and then when bill died in 92 which was a terrible day Mm -hmm. but you know. So we had the sheath, and when the book came out in 95, they're like, well, people are like, well, how could this be Bill's signature? He's dead, you know? <laughs> I was like, well, he wasn't dead before, you know?
0: <laughs> and that's not unique. I mean, I've seen it happen on other publications. They just happen to get the person to sign in advance like you did, and so... Uh... Right. <laughs> So um, how, how did Tales of Terror come about? Did that come about just directly from Collectively Mad, or is that totally independent?
2: Um, well, I was searching for, like, in other words, I had a really fun time doing Collectively Mad, and I, I was starting to look around for another project I could do.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I started thinking about the Fred Von Bernowitz EC Checklist and how valuable, you know, the information in that thing was. And I started reimagining it as, you know, what if we pictured every cover, you know, took the same information and fleshed it out with interviews and, and other stuff, you know, that could really be a cool book.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: um, so I pitched that around and, and Band the Graphics and then ultimately Gemstone sort of partnered on it. And <clears throat> so that's... That was the second book I did, Tales of Terror, the EC Companion.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And I I went up to Feldstein's Ranch in Livingston, Montana for a few days and interviewed him. Mm -hmm. And I I interviewed Jack Mendelson and Nick Meglin. I was just looking, and also Shelly Moldoff. I was just looking for ways to kind of flesh out the little pamphlet that that was the original EC checklist and make it more into, you know, something very cohesive and comprehensive. Um, and so that was that book, and that came out in 2000, I think. Okay. But also, after Collectively Mad, um, Charlie Kochman, who was an editor up at DC, hired me to, um, kind of assemble and, and write notes for the series of, like, the best of Mad. Kind oh, that's of books.
0: right. Yeah, you did that. Like, I, I forgot about that.
2: Yeah. Mad about the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. We did five of them. Mm -hmm. And and that was a lot of fun, because I would talk to the, you know, the EC people, I mean, the mad people that I knew, and get little anecdotes from them to flesh out my notes and stuff. And, you know, that that was really fun trying to pick the best material from those decades, but also material that kind of showed you the shape of the decades, like what happened
1: during
0: Mm
2: -hmm. various periods of time and stuff. It, It was fun, you know, trying to
0: organized yeah. Was there a reason those came out like in non-chronological order? Was it for sales yeah. reasons? Okay. Yeah,
2: because they wanted to do the, what they thought was going to be the biggest seller first, which I think was
0: the 60s. Right. Okay.
2: And then they did, I think then, did they do the 70s? Yeah, they did 60s, they
0: did the 70s, 70s, and then 50s, and then 80s, and 90s, <laughs> in that order.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were doing them because they wanted to, you know, the series to succeed, so they went for the biggest sellers first
0: makes sense but i mean it was just kind of curious it's like what happened to the 50s and my initial thought was because there's always kind of this weird question mark on the first 23 comic book issues of mad you know who owns the rights to it is it ec or is it gains or whatever you know you know it seems like there's a weird thing like even when Cochrane reprinted the magazines he had to do it in a certain way or something like that compared to yeah <coughs> You know. Yeah,
2: well, those are controlled under the Warner Brothers slash DC umbrella. Yeah. So, well, all, all all issues of MAD are under that. Okay. So in, including the comic book one. So.
0: Right, but I mean MAD comic book versus everything else EC is like, you know, when, whenever you include MAD with EC, isn't there like a little bit of a hurdle you have to kind of jump over to get the rights to do it that way? Yeah, I think so. Okay.
2: But, yeah, because, you know, when he sold off Matt, he kept the rights to all his other EC properties. Right. So, so, it, but, you know, when Bill was there, like with Cochran, he would just give Cochran the right to do stuff.
0: Hmm.
2: And, then, and then when it became more corporate, I think it got more difficult
0: to do certain things. Ah, but. okay. Because, um, uh, let's see. So, yeah, because, as, you know, like I said, it just seemed like, you know, I don't know how hard they are to find, you know, compared to the other EC sets that Cochran did, but it seems like, you know, at one point then Warner had to do their own archival version, DC archives or something, to l- lay stake on those first 23 issues again. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It just seemed weird. No, they
2: didn't have to do it. I think that was part of just an ongoing archive series that they were doing with their oh, various Okay topics. but they didn't. We didn't have to do it for any particular reason.
0: Okay. Now, um, another series I remember, didn't you, it, or they took excerpts from your Mad About the Decades type books. Uh, didn't they take, it, did, were you uh, the one that helped get, like, the first 10 or so uh, paperbacks reprinted? I think it was 12 of them, actually. Yeah,
2: that was through okay. iBooks. That also came through my friend Charlie Kochman. Okay. Uh, Byron Price had this company called iBooks, and he wanted to um, reprint the first you know the very earliest mad paperbacks like the mad Reader, mad strikes back you know all those and they asked me to do the notes for them as well and that was cool because those are you know that was the first um both i mentioned the tales from the crypt stuff but these early um like the mad reader and stuff were published by valentine and that was Basically, all the early Mad comic book material were in those. So,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I also collected those in the kids, So I knew, you know, I knew who these artists were—Wood and Elder and all that. So that was—I understood the crossover between <laughs> the horror and crime comics and Mad and and EC and stuff. But yeah, that was really fun to put those together.
0: Mm-hmm. Was there a reason uh, that it ended at book twelve, or is it just because that was all you were going to do?
2: Um, the reason uh, sadly Byron Price uh died okay that was the end of the company and the end of the series
0: so that okay was a shame. i didn't know but if that been correlated been, but yeah
2: yeah it did correlate but it might have been running out of steam anyway i think they might have were thinking of they might have been thinking of stopping with the mad frontier which they never did yeah they never did something. Yeah. but um they might well have stopped you know yeah. after that book
0: even if nothing had happened to Byron, right? I just thought it would have been neat to have the Mad Frontier with the JFK rocking chair cover, as it were. But oh yeah, <laughs> you know it
2: would have been great. Yeah, you know totally. because that
0: one's kind of hard to find. I mean, I have a copy, but yeah, you know, it's like <laughs> um. Now on Tales of Terror, since that was a co-authorship with uh, Fred Vernowitz, and he also did some Mad indexes, was there ever yeah. discussion or? even now is there ever any intention of uh, reprinting those old mad indexes that he did and no so- that
2: seemed like that would have been kind of too daunting of a project because <laughs> you know, there, there were you know way more issues of mad and just it would have been really complex to do it and now you can just go and go for um,
0: true. True. You know, Matt Mad covers that and looks up all that stuff. It's all in there. So. True. Okay. <laughs> That's true. It yeah. was like a, when Tales of Terror came out. I don't think there was much of an internet even at the time. I mean, I guess there was, but there certainly wasn't Doug's great Mad site. So <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um. Now on the covers in the Tales of Terror, I've always wondered, and I can ask for this now for the 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 big book that you've just done. Uh, yeah. Were those scans out of your own collection, or was that from other sources of all the covers oh, and everything?
2: Yeah. From for tales, you mean for Tales of Terror?
0: Yeah, ri- the original book and for the new one.
2: Okay, so for Tales of Terror, yeah, pretty much those were all my collection. I, I think I was still missing a handful of pre-trans comics when I did that book, and I borrowed them from my buddies. You know. Oh, okay. Um, But for Tales of Terror, I got access to games file copies and I scanned the front covers um, of, you know, virtually the entire uh, collection of games file copies.
1: Oh, cool. Okay. (laughs)
2: Yeah. And I had done that years ago. I mean, I just had access to them, And I just put them on a hard drive. I scanned them at actual size at like, I don't know, pretty high resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and just stuck them on a hard drive because I figured these are going to come in handy someday, and they sure did.
0: So, <laughs> so yeah. you did use those again for the current book? Is that No, 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 no,
2: no. Oh, okay. The their, th- those were just ones from my own collection. Oh, okay. And, um, I, you know, scanning technology from 20 years ago is, you know, it's, it's inferior to what you can do now.
1: Right. So, okay. the colors
2: were just slightly off on some of the. Uh, the it covers in tales of terror but for, you know for the new book those are those
0: are what i use the games file copies ah okay all right now it makes sense okay now yeah. we've, now we've, before we get to the big book um your next book was foul play is that correct yeah and yeah. uh that seems to focus more on the artists and some reprints of select stories and things like that how did that one come about
2: I think I pitched that idea to the Games of State, and they helped me find a publisher for that. Okay. Because I wanted to do, the the book is called um, Foul Play, The Art and Artist of the Notorious 1950s EC Comics, (laughs) and and what I wanted the book to be, and what it
1: is,
2: (coughs) is to have a chapter on each important EC artist, you know, talking about their whole lives, you know, starting With them as a kid, however, they started out and what their training was and whatever. Just little biographies showing that even that early work. And then each chapter culminating in a representative story from each of those artists.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: And that's that's what we did. And I went to uh, Wendy Gaines' house in Madison, Wisconsin. And we went to um, Gaines' entire archives of files and stuff. And pulled out a lot of unbelievable stuff for that book. Little,
1: yeah.
2: you know, drawings that the artist had done for games. Little jokes and office, um, you know, office artwork that was done for parties and stuff like that. Um, and it was wonderful to have all that stuff in that book.
0: Yeah. So that was yeah. great. I think that might have become my favorite one of your books until the new one. But, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah. were there any other books that you did between that one and the new one?
2: Um, Well, yeah, I did uh, the biography of
0: Al Feldstein. Oh, that's right, that's right. I'm forgetting the Al Feldstein book. For some reason, I think Al wrote it himself. I forgot. You helped him. (laughs) I
2: wrote wrote the book. I interviewed him. I went back up to Livingston, Montana, and spent three days with him. Because the original interview I had done, I basically had tons of material already. Mm -hmm. But there was still some stuff I wanted to ask him about and actually you know on that second trip for for his biography book he opened up to me about, about a bunch of personal stuff um, which i really thought should be in the book and he kind of demurred at first ah, i don't want that in there and, <laughs> but then finally you know stuff about his divorce and just different things that really fleshed out his his life and and um, he he agreed that you know, and I told him it would be handled sensitively and stuff like that. And, and he finally agreed to let me put it in there. And um, <clears throat> what the way I did that book is I, I would work on one chapter at a time and I would write to where, you know, um, I would write a certain amount of material and then I would visualize it. I put the images in and flesh out the chapter and then write some more, put the images in, write some more. And so and then I got to the end of that chapter, and then I would send it to him. And if he had any corrections, he would send it back to me with comments. So he saw the whole book as it was uh, literally as it was being created.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, did he survive the publication of that one, or no?
2: Yeah, he did. That oh, was okay. his, actually his one big dream was to have a book like that about his life and work. Yeah. And. Um, so he, he, I think he died the year after that book came out, but okay. he was so happy to have, you know, have that in his hands. The only sad thing was, his health really didn't permit him to go to San Diego Con and kind of do panels about the book and stuff, which he wanted to do and which was planned, right. but he, he just, you know, his health was kind of failing at the end, so he really wasn't able to do that.
0: Yeah. I am glad I did meet him one year, I think it was a few years before your book, and um, I'm glad you did the book, I'll say that, because I always think about ideas for books myself that I go, eh, there's no book about such and such, and th- there was an Al Feldstein idea that crossed my mind, it's like, wow, there's no book about him, they, everybody talks about Kurtzman, 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 which is fine, there's great Kurtzman yeah, books, yeah, You know, but there's nothing about Feldstein, I said, only the guy that helped Mad become a major success, and also wrote virtually all the Tales from the Crypt and stories like that, and and was a fantastic editor. And it's like it just was like virtually ignored by the industry, you know. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah.
2: So yeah, we sort of corrected that.
0: I'm glad so, you yeah, did
2: but it. DC fans in general kind of know about Feldstein's uh, contribution. Yeah. But there is, you know, and I talk about this in both uh, the Feldstein book and, and the new
1: Passion book. You know, there is a kind of a Kurtzman cult. Yeah. You know, people that worship Kurtzman's genius,
3: as rightly they should. He was an incredible talent. Yes. But, but at the same time, they kind of denigrate
2: Feldstein's contributions. And, and, you know, I try to write that wrong a bit.
0: Right. And maybe it's all based upon just because they did... Feldstein did Panic, you know, and it's like, you know, how dare they rip off my precious Kurtzman,
1: you know? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, you could,
2: I mean, I'm sure that must have really annoyed the heck out of Kurtzman that Gaines and Feldstein, you know, did a knockoff of Mad. Yeah. But like James himself said, look, if I was Martin at, at uh, you know, Atlas or Timely or Marvel, whatever, um, you know, they would have done 20 of them. Right. So, you know.
0: Why, and they, they, and they I, did a few over there, you know, so it's like... Yeah, they the,
2: did, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Gantz's idea was like, look, I'm the publisher, why can't I do a sort of an imitation of my own magazine? Which they kind of made fun of, but like they they actually come right out on stay right on the covers that Panic is an imitation of math.
0: Right. <laughs> I thought it was hysterically right. funny once I found out about Panic. I, you know, it was like they just kind of shuffled it under the carpet nowadays, you know, but back then, you know, I was like, that's pretty ballsy, but then at the same time, you know, if you only stuck with one title, you'd only get Tales from the Crypt. You wouldn't have The Haunt of Fear and The Vault of Horror, and you'd only have Weird Science, and you'd only have Two-Fisted Tales. You wouldn't have all the spin-off titles of those. So, you know.
2: Right. And, you know, and EC was actually, you know, a fairly compact line. They only had nine comics, even at their height of productivity.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, you know, I mean, I don't know how many comic Atlas was publishing. I, I can't imagine there's got to be many, many multiples of of that nine.
0: You know? Yeah, but also they didn't have things that lasted very long. I mean, you know, we talk about that. They put out like Wild and Crazy and a couple other titles that are similar, but they only last like a handful of issues, maybe a half dozen at most. So, you know. Yeah, that
1: was
2: that's what comic publishers did in those days. They would, if something was selling, they would try to jump on the bandwagon and see if they could capture some of that and then you know if they if it didn't work out then they just cancel those titles and do some other thing right Chase some other trend you know
0: very strange (laughs) well now that leads up to the big book you know i should insert a big sound effect here of like a brick you know (laughs) so how did let me get the title right or you can say the title I mean it has an official title it's the history of EC comics I had to stand up because I I don't have it with me on my lap or I'd be gasping for breath yeah (laughs) so how did that one come about
2: (laughs) so Passion approached me well I guess Passion approached the Games of state they wanted to do a, a book you know comprehensive book on the EC comics and the James Estate recommended me to do the project because I'd done these other ones Um, and the catching people already knew who I was like they they had foul play and they had the Feldstein book and stuff like that so they approached me and you know um, one thing led to another and I I agreed to do it Mm -hmm. so I think it took um, was more than two years of working on it Mm-hmm. from when we kind of, you know, signed the contracts and stuff like that to when it finally came out. It was, yeah, more than more than two years.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, did you find it difficult to do or easy to do, and I'll say why, because you've gone over the same subject matter so many times before?
1: <sighs> yeah, this, well,
2: that's a difficult book to do because initially I was trying to wrap my head around how to present it, right. how, you know. How to do this story, um, and I knew that I wanted to start at the start with MC Gaines and and his contributions to the giveaway comics and very early pre you know superhero industry and stuff like that that MC um, Gaines was so instrumental in. So I knew I wanted that to be part of it, and literally you know trace the history from 1933 up through 1956 when james published his last comic book
1: mm-hmm. and then there's
2: an after aftermath chapter that's so that's kind of how i visualized the book but the hard thing for me was Cashin wanted me to do an outline like a breakdown <laughs> and it's like i don't know I, I just in other words i never had done a breakdown on my other books like the feldstein book i just started right i started at the beginning i wrote that chapter I finished it. It was all designed. I showed it to Al. Then I went on to chapter two, and I did the same thing. So I had never done a breakdown like that for any book.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, they, and they, you know, they wanted me to before doing anything. I had to figure out what I was going to do, and that was very hard, actually.
1: For yeah. Me. Um, but I was able to
2: kind of figure it out, and um, and in the end, the the book as published in terms of the way the chapters. Flow and everything—it's pretty much exactly what I had planned, except I think I in the breakdown I was planning on a whole chapter on the 3D comics, those two uh, EC 3D comics, right? And that, that that was just unworkable. There was no reason to give a whole chapter to those, and so I consolidated that. Um, but I think that was the only major change from from the way I initially you know did that breakdown. <laughs> but um, it was it was daunting trying to figure
0: out, you know, how am I going to tell this story? Yeah. The only thing I can compare it with for my own work is when I finally did the Harvey Comics Companion, I was just going to, and I don't know if you did this, Is like I just said, well, I'll just take this material and expand upon it. I couldn't. I had to start over, you know, because... Yeah. I mean, I took elements from my old stuff, but it's like I really had to just start from scratch and like piece it together because, it you know, I and like you, it's like I don't think your previous books really did cover MC Gaines in as much detail. I mean, this is probably the first biography of MC Gaines, you know, really, you know, I mean, people talk about him, but maybe it's a page or two, you know, you went on, for, you know, pages. It's like, you could have that as your own, as a a sole book, you know, just a Max Gaines story, you know. Yeah,
2: you you could. I mean, so that was actually the fun thing for me was, you know, researching all that early, because I basically knew, you know, Max Gaines' contribution, but then to go really in depth and, you know, find his actual comments about things he was publishing and, and stuff like that. That was very fascinating. And then, you know, to divide the book up into, like, a chapter called Revenge, that I, I decided to put, like, crime suspense stories and shock suspense stories. They have a dedicated chapter, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, and like you say, I, there was because i had all these other books and groundwork you know i did have groundwork laid but it's not it doesn't just plug in to to a new format you know what i mean yeah so yeah yeah, i agree with what you said (laughs)
0: because i i I was i was reading through it because i got it a couple weeks ago and i was like you know it's like yeah there's elements of your other books but it's like wow this is like a brand new thing so you did it the way i would have done it if i had the similar assignments so you know yeah Um, Was it difficult getting information about Max Gaines? I mean, you know, a lot has been written about him, but, I mean, is it, like, difficult to unearth anything new about him, or was it pretty easy?
2: Um, I had actually found some pretty rare stuff um, relating to early Max Gaines, the things from print magazine, and then there was a little pamphlet um, that was distributed to kind of, like, I guess to ad agencies and stuff like that, about how comics can sell products and stuff. It was very early. And, you know, I may have one of the only surviving copies of it. That's, that's in the book there. But it's a whole article from M. C. Gaines talking about, you know, how comics can sell products and stuff like that. So I did find some great stuff that I don't think anyone else had kind of accessed
0: before. Right. <laughs> So that but that wasn't e- that wasn't difficult to find or was it? Just out of curiosity.
2: I just found it years ago on eBay. Huh. You know, way 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 before you know, this book was ever conceived. But I, I thought, you know, stuff like this, so one day it's gonna come in handy and it and I did.
0: Yep. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm glad you shared it. <laughs> um, yeah. so now, um a question about the Tashin books, and they seem to do this. So they've put out big giant books for DC and Marvel as well. And then afterwards, they come out with like smaller versions. Like, you know, there's like a Marvel version that just covers like the 1961 to like 1980 or something like that. And so, so is that in the planning with Tash in here? Is that they'll put like, you know, et- excerpts into smaller versions of the same book and stuff like that? Or you don't know yet? I, I really don't know yet. They, yeah, I'm not really privy to their
1: exact plans. Okay. Um, but I assume there'll be some smaller version
2: of this book at some point. Okay. But, you know, it, it's not going to be a year from now or even two years from now. I doubt it. I, I think they usually let a fair amount of time go by before they start, you know, doing consolidated or condensed versions of these
0: books right i know they did that with the marvel one i can't remember the dc one but it's like it was a few years you know and i remember when the marvel one came out because i contributed some scans for it because roy thomas asked me to and then yeah. i saw the book and it's like yes i'm a marvel fan but not as much as ec and i think it was like 150 at the time which seemed insane of course you know this one is listing at 200 I think, and, uh, you yeah. know, but my love for EC is a little bit stronger than Marvel, so I did take the plunge on this one. The last one, I just found the the special thanks page and took a photo of it, because my name was there, but, <laughs> of course, that one now trades for $500, because it's out of print, so uh, I envision that that'll happen with this one, it'll go out of print, and then, you know, it'll skyrocket.
1: You never
2: know. Okay. There's only... There it's kinda cool in the Taching Book they they used um the little E P Fanatic Club kit card. Yeah. And they did a they did a numbered printing. So um there's only five thousand copies of this first printing and each one is individually numbered on this little card, which was a pretty great little touch that they did. Yeah.
0: I got mine and I don't have it open right at the moment, but it was around one thousand and I thought, wow, that's pretty low. I was expecting to be like at the tail end because I I was not one of the few people that went whole hog right at the beginning. I I was on the fence about it to be honest, because it's it is a lot of money. you You know, and I said, you know, it's like and you know, a tip in sheet with signatures doesn't necessarily sell it for me. I mean, it's like I just have to know if I can afford the thing. And then finally, um I think it was my friend, well, you know him too, Lee of Lee's Comics. He says, yeah, sure, you know, yeah. if you don't get it now, it's going to be more expensive later. And it's like, you know, I kind of bit the bullet and my thought was, well, the Beatles didn't put out their Let It Be box set this year. They postponed it a year, and that was going to be my big purchase for this year. So I'll buy the Tash and EC book. And so that's, I did.
2: Well, that's a good, yeah, good plan. I like it. And I'll be, buying, I'll be buying the Let It Be box set, too, when it finally comes yeah. out.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so I figured you would. You, yeah, I'm sure you're still a Beatles fan. So it's like, oh, yeah. uh, so anyway, I said, you know, and now that I've gone through the EC book, I said, I made a good investment because it's like, you know, I wouldn't do it for every company. Like I said, I saw the Marvel and DC ones, and I go, I like that stuff. But it's like, EC, I go, you know, I know it's going to have huge, oversized pictures of everything that I love. And it did. Now...
2: Well, quite honestly, let me just throw this in. I kind of told them... um, I was a little ballsy, but I actually told them that I don't really like those Marvel and DC books, and I'll tell you why, because they're not really chronological. Mm -hmm. And I I just, maybe I don't have the intellect or something, but I never know where I am in those books. You know, what are we talking about? Because they might have a, they're talking about stuff in the 40s, and then you'll see a cover from the 70s. It's like, what is going on? You know?
1: Yeah.
2: And I said to them, I don't want to do the book like that. it has to be chronological. Right. I want to see, you know, stuff out of order um, and whatever. So, and, and to their credit, they, you know, they said, okay, you know, you have a vision for the book, so follow. And um, so it is chronological and it's a history. Um, and that's what, what I most wanted to achieve with the tashing book. Mm -hmm. And and it is is expensive, but it's a giant book. I mean, it's six hundred pages. It's uh, like more than fifteen inches high. Right. And and the the printing and even the paper, it's a kind of a very thick, you know, paper that
1: they use. And it's just everything about it is beautifully crafted. Yeah. So
2: I, you know, it is expensive, and I guess that you know, people don't always have an extra couple hundred bucks to throw around on stuff, but.
0: It even has
2: if you do you know it, it is a you know a beautifully crafted book
0: It even has a bookmark <laughs> sewn yeah, into it
1: bookmark, right <laughs> yeah.
0: I was, I was surprised, you know, I was just like flipping the, through the pages and I go, what's this thing? Oh, it's a bookmark. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I used it, you know, I said, you know, I'm getting tired because it's not something you can just sit down and do in one reading. Even if you're flipping through the pages, it's so big. And it's like, so I said, ah, I'll use the bookmark right here. And it was handy when I went back to it, you know, so. The
2: other thing that's interesting about the and they kind of have, I don't want to call it a formula, but it's sort of the the way they do these books. Like the text, you know, they don't want it to be over a certain amount of words because they want the pictures to tell a lot of the story. Mm -hmm. But what that means is the captions, you know, a lot of the information that you would normally put in the body copy Mm -hmm. ends up having to go into the captions because you don't have enough word count in the body copy. Mm
1: -hmm. So the
2: captions in these books are way more important than in a, in a normal picture book.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> because
2: there's so much information that needs to go in the caption. Right. So, so it, it was an interesting way, you know, like I say, a lot of stuff that's in the captions, I would have put in the body copy, but they, that's not how they do it.
0: Huh? So. Yeah, I noticed that, but I didn't know that that was purposely done that way. Okay. Um, now you laid this one out too, correct?
2: Yeah, kind of. What happened was, well, initially they told me they only wanted me to write it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was like, well, it's good thing. I don't even know that I could do a book that way. I'm not sure because I think visually when I'm writing these things and it's like I see it, you know, the way the images should be next to the, the, the text. So, and that's the way i always then books. And that, that's the fun of it for me. So I kind of drug my feet, like, I don't want to just write it. I want to write it and design it. I'll do, I'll do what I do on my other book. And they said, okay. But ultimately they took what I did. I delivered a fully designed book. And then they kind of passionized it. They moved things around.
1: And
2: <laughs> they took some things out, which some of which I objected to and they put it back and stuff. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, so really it, it was a, Cooperative effort between Josh Baker, who's their designer at Passion, and myself. But I, you know, I I'm really happy with the way it looks, and so I I can't complain.
0: Yeah, I would say if I have a quibble, I mean it's not really a quibble because it's good stuff. Is kind of the repeating of all the covers in the back because they're kind of throughout the entire book anyway. <laughs> but I guess it's kind of nice because they're all together in one spot at the end, you know. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I, I, I did the cover section, the gallery at the end, differently.
1: Uh-huh. I did them, because what they did is in, in the gallery at the back,
2: some come the big, some covers smaller. I did the gallery all the same size, so you could just scan across, quickly see all the covers, because so many of them appear elsewhere on the book. I thought, you know, that was a good solution. But things, they did it their
0: way. So it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm not quibbling. I mean, it's like, it could be worse. It could be 20, 30 pages of nothing. (laughs) So it's like... (laughs) um, It's interesting that you continued on with the Mad Covers I think until the end of 57 or something like that. Was that a choice by them or by you or what?
2: Well, that was, to me, I I wanted to show um, just those early, very early Mad Covers only, you know. right? Just show the kind of transition which
0: is part of the aftermath, kind of, you know. Right. Because it it is kind of an interesting thing, because they did keep a style, you know. It's like, you know, at least until, well, I mean, even until recently, I'd say Unmad. you know. It's like they always have a good art style, so. (laughs) But, but, you know, with Feldstein in charge, at least through the mid-'80s, you know, it's like there was a consistency that just evolved over time, so, you know. But, um.
2: Yeah. Man, always clear. I remember a friend Jacob, um, one of the mad writers, telling me, because we were talking about Phelpsing. I, I was interviewing him for the Feldstein book, and, and he said what Feldstein demanded was clarity. And I, I wasn't sure what he meant initially, but I saw some scripts, the way the writers delivered them, and then I read published versions of like some of the movie parodies.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and the feldstein edited version is way more clear it's all the jokes are there all you know but it's it's condensed down to the essence it's, they're very concise yeah and Feldstein did that you know that's what his job as the editor
3: was he didn't he wasn't funny he didn't come up with the joke
2: but he boiled it down to the essence and that's what he did for his entire mad
1: career
0: right I mean, in a certain way, there's a certain rigidity to his mad, but it's actually a good thing that he did that, you know, by putting everything, I know Felt, I mean, excuse me, I, I know um, uh, Kurtzman started a lot of things like calling something in a department, but I think <laughs> Feldstein took it to a whole new level, you know, that everything was kind of com- carpeted. Compartmentalized, you know, you got your spy versus spy over here, and your Don Martin over here, and your fold over here, you know, it's like, yeah.
2: And, yeah, and, and what, you know, people like Larry Spiegel, who worked with both Harvey and Selstein, they said, you know, Harvey would have never done multiple fold ins or multiple spy versus spy. They might do it once. Yeah. You know it, it was funny we're doing f- one fold in now we are go somewhere else we'll do something else right and and Dove Bean was like no no this is good we're going to hang on to this this is you know this is a recurring feature yeah and um and hardin would have never done that so all these things that we think about or you know people of a certain age think about when they think about now like spy versus spy and the fold in and the movie parodies and the tv parodies and Don Martin, and, you know, uh, all this kind of stuff. That was all right? um, uh, concept. Mm -hmm. And I actually interviewed Larry Siegel, who was a mad writer, and who later won some Emmys for working on the Carol Burnett show and stuff. And he said, when he got to Hollywood, he goes, Carol Burnett had these, what they call departments, you know, she would have this you know, older character or whatever, like sketch comedy, but it was recurring, like the, every week they would have the same right character, the same stuff. And Larry Siegel said to me, he goes, when I got out here, I said, this is Feldstein stuff. This is what Feldstein does. He grabs on something and, and keeps hammering it. Yeah. But he goes, I realized as stupid as, <laughs> as some people think it is. yeah, The audience wants that. They want to see these recurring things. That's why they're tuning in and it's yeah. the same with Mac.
0: Yeah. Well, he did that with the horror hosts and things like that. I mean, there is a consistency there, you know? Yeah,
2: there's, there's stuff you can hang on to. Yeah,
0: definitely. I, I'm surprised he never came up with sci-fi hosts or a sci-fi mascot, but I guess, you know, that was like a little bit of a different thing there. But, you know, it's like there was still a consistency by, like, like using Ray Bradbury's material and stuff like that, so I don't know. <laughs> um
2: they took their science fiction stories a little more seriously. They always said the horror stuff was basically like, almost like thick humor, you know, um, <laughs> tongue in cheek, you know, very over the top. But right. I think the science fiction stuff they, they kind of took it more seriously as story.
0: Yeah. Now you, uh, you mentioned we were mentioning things like the fold-in. Um, this book has a unique fold-in. How did that come about? That you got Jaffe to do that?
2: So um, Jerry Weath, um, who Well, he was many things, but he initially, you know, he and Roger Hill did, you know, the first kind of really quality 70s fanzine Squatron. Um, And he had it in his mind to do another kind of great version of Squatron. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Anyway, so we kind of did that for his proposed, you know, mega edition of Squatron. And he couldn't even use the name Squatron because John Benson had already... Kind of taken it over, but um, but so he wanted to do this big kind of EC fanzine, and we sort of put together for that and commissioned Jackie. To, um, but then Jerry, you know, passed away, and it, and I had it, um, and I thought this would be the perfect of the passion book, this EC Mhm. and the um kind of. Uh, you know the pattern. What they do is they they pose a question at the top, and they say, you know, what is the you know main problem facing EC comic collectors? And then you describe what you know what the problem is. And then there's more text at the bottom folded in, and it answers the question: What is the main problem of, of that EC collectors face? And then right. you fold it in, and you get the answer. So right. anyway, it, it just seemed like a perfect thing to end the book with
0: that's cool you know because i mean there's a lot of unique stuff in that book but that was you know totally new you know it wouldn't have been you know because some people thought which you know i think it was on facebook which issue of mad was this in and i said it wasn't you know exactly yeah yeah so i mean if you're a folding aficionado and even if you have those big folding books you have to get this to get all of them (laughs) (laughs) that's right um so what's next on your EC book agenda, if anything, or is this the be-all, end-all? I'm done, or you never know. <laughs>
2: um, I mean, there's still a couple little projects I'd like to do. I still want to do a Moon Girl volume, oh, cool. you
0: know,
2: reprinting all the Moon Girl comics and various stories that have appeared in other, you know, not in Moon Girl but in other EC books. Um, that, that's one little thing I'd like to do. There's a couple little things. It's going to be hard, <laughs> quite hard, in fact to ever top this kitchen book and I uh,
0: yeah. did you think that going into it or did you think this is really special I should try to do my best <laughs> well
2: I always try to do my best right
0: right <laughs> but, um,
2: but the, you know the kitchen book I figured was going to be so comprehensive that I just threw everything at it you know including the kitchen sink very cool <laughs> so uh, there's really nothing I held back from that book it was just like everything's got to go in there
0: everything that i have or can think of right so um a couple other questions i want to ask you because i usually ask about everything so it's like and i'm sure you've been asked this a zillion times and we're going to go off the ec track but we'll wrap it up um uh, you mentioned way back at the beginning of the show you know it's like you were working on two and a half men uh and you wrote the theme song how did that come about that's like Totally random, it seems like, in my mind, compared to everything else in your career. (laughs) You you tell me. Well,
2: so, like, most everything good that's happened to me, um, it's related to Mad, in a way. Okay. Um, So I knew a buddy of mine called Lee Aronson, um, and the reason we knew each other, we got introduced because we both collect Mad Magazine artwork and Mad Magazine stuff, and Whatever, and Lee is a TV writer, but um, we never really interacted. Because of that, we interacted because if one of us got something cool, we would call up and go, "Hey, look what I got!" and come mm-hmm. over and see it, mm-hmm.
1: stuff
2: like that. And so, gosh, I, I guess this was—I lose track of the date. Probably around 1998 or so. Yeah. Uh, Lee calls up and he goes, "Hey, I'm—I uh, um, got." com I'm working on it's going to be called life and stuff and it has uh, Pam Dauber in it and a comedian called Rick Reynolds and he goes
1: you're
2: a musician why don't you pitch a theme for it and I'm like okay <laughs> so so he told me what the show was about and it's kind of like a like a midlife crisis kind of show about this guy examining his life and stuff and so I wrote this theme. and um, <clears throat> and I did a little demo of it, and I called up Lee, and I go, Hey, I, you know, I got this thing. I want to play it for you. He goes, Okay, why don't you come down to the office? We'll play it for all the writers and whatever. Oh, great. So I <laughs> brought my little boombox and a cassette of the theme that I had recorded.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I I went into the office, and I set up my little boombox, and, and I looked at Lee, and all of a sudden I see this look cross his eyes, and I somehow knew what he was thinking, which was, oh, my God, what if this sucks? I don't really know if my <laughs> buddy can do this, you know? I knew he was thinking that. And he actually says, hey, what if this sucks? And I go, well, then if it sucks, you say thank you for coming down and we'll let you know. And you, everyone laughed and it's okay, okay. <laughs> so uh, I press play and they liked it. And so that ended up going um, on this CBS show called Life and Stuff. Sadly, though, the network hated the show, and they pulled the plug after four episodes. Oh.
1: So,
2: so that was 1998. Um, and then flash forward about five years later, we had still kept in touch about Mad and whatever. And my buddy Lee calls up again and goes, hey, I'm working on this show called Two and a Half Men. And it's going to have John Cryer and Charlie Sheen. And I think we should get together and try to pitch a theme for it. And he goes, (laughs) I don't know what it should be, but it should be some kind of, I don't know, Monty Python kind of something. And it needs to have the word men in it. Yeah. Okay. So I jotted down some ideas. (laughs) And then we came over and we made this little demo. And he presented it to Chuck Lorre. And Chuck initially was not that into it, but one thing led to another. And (laughs) anyway... In the end, uh, Chuck liked the team and we all kind of reworked it. And so there's actually three of us. It was me, Chuck Lorre, and Lee i all share a writing credit on it. But that's how Two and a Half Men happened.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> um, was so, there any influence? Because, oh. so the,
2: the bottom line is it happened because of Mad Magazine. Wow. That's, that's what I to <laughs> so it's connected
0: at. here, so I'm not going off the... <laughs> yeah. um, was there any sort of influence, uh, Martin Mull did a song called Men, 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 I think he co-wrote it with Steve Martin, was there any, you know, influence you know, from I didn't, that?
2: I didn't, I didn't know about that song, i, I never heard it. Oh, okay. And I, I guess it's possible Lee mentioned it, but if he did, it didn't register, because I didn't know what he was talking
0: about. Right, okay.
2: So <laughs> what, what I remember is, um, he referenced Monty Python and it had to have the word men, those two things. Got it.
0: So you were probably thinking more spam, spam, spam. <laughs> You're
1: exactly correct. That's exactly right. Yeah.
0: Um, then also it says you played on the Monk theme. Did you compose that one too or just play on it?
2: Um, no, I didn't compose it. I just played on it. Got it. Um, okay. It was, it was interesting. That was very kind of Django Reinhardt kind of uh, guitar, you know, acoustic guitar thing. And Jeff, Jeff Beal... Uh, the composer on that. Mm-hmm. And I just went over and you know maybe an hour or so playing on this little thing. But the weird thing was, the show is called Monk, and I, I couldn't get that to stick in my mind because when I think of a monk, I think of a like a Buddhist monk or a, you know some guy in a monastery or something.
1: <laughs>
2: so I, I couldn't. The show's name didn't stick in my mind, and when it started airing. You know a few friends of mine would go hey was that you playing on on muck i go i don't think so i, I
1: don't know I, I don't think i don't
2: remember that <laughs> and then it's like oh that's what
1: that was
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah right. i'm
2: not always the bad i <laughs> let me just say
0: that <laughs> now have you composed any other theme songs or anything like that that we might know about or
2: <laughs> well we also not the theme but we um we did the music for Mike and Molly. Oh, okay. And I think starting in the fourth season, uh, Chuck Lurie wanted kind of a, I don't know, just an updated sort of snappier version of the theme, which was an existing song by Kevin Moe. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of, we reimagined uh, the theme just it's kind of a, I don't know, maybe a more of a New Orleans kind of feel or something. Mm-hmm. And so we did the track and then Kev Mo came over to the studio and sang sang uh, the, the thing and I, I had in mind that he would do some background vocals. And he goes, You know, I don't really do that because I'll do it if you sing it with me and <laughs> I was like, Okay So, <laughs> so it's like this three part harmony thing that Kev and I doubled ourselves on um, for the background. Oh
0: wow. <laughs> I had no so idea because was... I don't know if they give credit on that, you know, anywhere. So you just, well, have to... I mean,
1: it's just you know
0: Credit,
2: but, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but
0: that was very fun. It's very cool. And um, you know, we, we don't have time to go through all your big uh, music career. I mean, you worked with Ringo, you worked with uh, yeah, Brian Wilson, you worked with all Josh Groban. You know. <laughs> but uh, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff.
2: My mind usually goes blank when someone asks me. Yeah. But I did play on, on one Ringo album. Yeah. On one that. I did some slide guitar because I think Joe Walsh was out of town, <laughs> they called me. Oh,
0: okay. Because it says it's on Ringo Rama. So if you're a huge Beatle fan, yeah. I mean, what was that like?
2: <laughs> well, Ringo wasn't there.
0: Oh, um, okay.
2: But, um, but playing along with his groove, I just felt like I was putting on a comfortable pair of slippers because I've played along to Beatle albums since I was, you know, 11 or 12 years old. So it just felt like, this is right, you know, if this
0: feels right. Mm-hmm. Well, also, really I assume crazy. you worked with Mark Hudson directly, right, on that?
1: Yeah, it was Mark,
0: yeah. Okay, so, there. you know, he has a good feel for that, so I'm sure you were in, entwined in tune for that, I suppose. But <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and then my last question before we kind of wrap things up, you know, it's like, you're known for the guitar solo, <laughs> on uh, uh, Chuck Mangione's Feel So Good album. And uh-huh. how well, did that come know. about? I'm sure you've been asked a billion times, but i got to ask it.
2: <laughs> well, so I got a call out of the blue one day. Really, that's what I've done. I'm, I'm a professional guitarist.
1: So right.
2: the fact that I do these books is kind of amazing in a way. <laughs> so, you know, years ago, I got a call out of the blue from Chuck Mangione. And he goes, um, you were recommended to me by a buddy of mine, and we're doing this gig at the Santa Monica Civic, and I want to know if you want to do it. It says, they rehearsals and then gig the next night. And I was like, yeah, great, let's do it. So um, I did that, and he liked it. And he was looking to add a guitar player to his permanent band.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And he said, well, we've got this little string of dates, I don't know five or six dates up in the Pacific Northwest, Seattle and Portland and stuff. You want to, you know, come with us on these dates and check it out? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. So um, one thing led to another, and he asked me to join the band, which I did. Cool. And then the first album we did was Feel So Good. <laughs> and um, the funny thing is, the track Feel So Good on the album is like seven minutes long. Right. <laughs> That's what this whole kind of rubato opening and Chuck, you know, I'm um, playing guitar behind his melody. <clears throat> and then it goes into the song, and there's, I think there's like a maybe a sax solo before my solo. It's like very long. Right. And so they edited it down into this um, little single version that they could play on the radio. And that's what people yeah, It's <laughs> top 40 hits. So that's why so many people remember it. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I I actually am kind of amazing because I've had a lot of people tell me when when I heard that solo, I had to pull off the side of the road and listen to it. It was so amazing; it was (laughs) coming out of nowhere. Yeah. So it was pretty fun,
0: fun times. Now, did it come out of nowhere, or did you actually compose it? And
2: so, well, it's kind of a long story. We did demos of a lot of the tunes on "Feel So Good." We were in in the is around playing stuff for the first time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then we went on the road for three weeks or something. And every night we were playing this new material. So it just kept getting hotter and hotter. And yeah. and, um, yeah. and in the daytime, we would be obsessively listening to these demos, trying to figure out what we can do to make things better and whatever. And and most of us just sort of relearned stuff we did on the demos, only played it better, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, that was the thing with that feels so good, solo. So maybe seventy-five percent of the solo is what I improvised on the demo,
1: mm-hmm. but
2: then I fixed up stuff I didn't like, and you know, so it's kind of part improvisation and part composition. Cool. <laughs> and I have—I have a website, and there's a transcription of the solo um, if you want to go on there and download it.
1: Cool. So, <laughs>
2: yeah, you, you can click on. <laughs> that's what I say.
0: Wow, <laughs> now you—you um, you just said you consider yourself a musician, and then you know you write books on the side. Is it hard to juggle both careers? I mean, in the pandemic times, you're probably not touring around, so it's probably easier to write a book. But uh, when you were doing any of these books you've done over the years, I mean, was there times where the publishers like, uh, we have a deadline here, it's like, sorry, I'm to- I'm on tour or something. <laughs>
2: No, it was people, because I, I was sort of off the road by the time I was doing these books. I was okay. doing more studio work and stuff like that. So Got it. Um, and actually, I had never missed a deadline on my book, ever.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> in, until the Tashing book. And I
1: think
2: I was, <laughs> um, I, I think I was a couple of months the deadline with the Tashing book. Oh. But I have been sending them stuff all along. Like I'd finish a chapter and send it in. So they knew I was you know, producing work—it was just such an overwhelming task.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you're you know, forgiven but, for that. It's a huge book. You know, it's like, geez. So they, were,
2: they were totally fine. You know, yeah. um, sometimes these deadlines are artificially imposed, anyway. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, here's your deadline, but really, we've built in all kinds of lead time. You know, so, and I told Sergio that Sergio Aragones were like. Sergio, for the first time in my life, I missed a deadline, and, you know, I don't know, I hope they're not mad. He goes, oh,
1: please.
0: (laughs) 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 Um, Well, were they trying to make any sort of particular goal or time frame? Because it seemed to come out in a good time, but...
2: Um, The only... And not because of my missing a deadline. Their initial idea was to come out... For San Diego Comic Con this year, ah. uh, but um, so they didn't quite make that, and then it came up for uh, you know October or, or late September. Yeah, but uh, but you no, know, so and it was almost like uh, I turned the book in, and then it was nearly a year before they showed me kind of the revised galleys and stuff like that. So I think passion just sort of. Puts things out when they're ready. You know, it's not actually. Um, it's different because, like with Harper Collins, I turned the book in, and then they're like, "Okay, well, so a year from now the book will come out." That's that's usually the way major publishers do stuff. They, you know, very extremely long lead times, like a year. Yeah. They want the cover. The cover first is usually what they want, so they can advertise the book. But when you turn it in, it's like a year from now before you're going to see it. Right. Um, and with Passion, the cover was the last thing to do that hmm. they did. So it, I think they just have a whole different philosophy about
0: publishing. <laughs> well, but it works,
1: you know, it works for them.
0: Yeah. I mean, they do, generally, in general, everything they put out is very handsome looking. It's very well thought out stuff, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so.
2: Yeah, they take their time, you know. So yeah, and they, you know, it's kind of they have their expensive books. They're a niche market, and I think they, they know where to sell these things, and they have, they probably have a fair amount of people that just buy every book that they make, and stuff like that.
0: Right. Know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have quite a few of them. Not necessarily the big, large volumes, but I have, you know, because it, like I said, they tend to do like expurgated versions of just little smaller versions like even like pocket-sized books sometimes of like books that came out as huge giant tomes originally um yeah. I, I don't know if it was them but i think it was weren't they the ones that did that massively huge muhammad ali one you know it, it's uh, i don't know i think they did and it was like you know I saw it in a store once, and I said, "How would you ever get this thing home? It's like it's huge. It's like it dwarfs your EC book So, <laughs> anyway, I well, think
2: I, I know there's been some books where they provide a little coffee table with
0: them. Yeah, know. I think that one was one, that was one of them. It was a yeah. yeah. It was it was a huge book, and the cover picture was that overhead shot of the ring of Muhammad Ali defeating Sonny Liston, and Sonny Liston's on the ground, and Muhammad Ali has his. Uh, arms up and the thing was i don't know it's like three feet by three feet by five inches thick you know wow. and it's like geez yeah. you know i was just fascinated about how big it was you know it was like <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and anyway um so uh i guess that's pretty much everything i wanted to ask about today so i mean i always kind of end up as like You know, where can you be seen? Of course, we're in a pandemic now, so you're probably not touring around. So it's like, uh, you know, how can people get in touch with you? How can they get your book? So go ahead and plug away everything you want to talk about.
2: Well, I'm on Facebook, and I usually, you know, put stuff. If I'm going to be playing live anywhere, I put that. Uh, If they want to contact me, they can go to my website, which is grantgeisman.com, and there's a little contact uh, page there they can use. And as far as where to get, like, the Tashin book, they can order it through Tashin, or they can order it through Bud Clant Art Books, I think it's called. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
2: If you order through Bud, there's a little scientific sheet with some Angelo Torres custom art on it, and I've signed the sheet. Um, Or your local comic shops, they often carry big books like this, and uh, it shouldn't be that hard to find.
0: Yeah. At least at present. (laughs) All right. Um, Well, I appreciate you being my guest today, Grant. And, uh, you know, if there's nothing else to say, I want to just wish you a good day.
2: Thank you, Mark. It was really fun talking about all this stuff.
0: Thank you for listening, and thank you, Grant Geisman, for being my special guest. Episode number 98 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas Podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is Copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. Heading
1: home to a cardboard hut with duct tape doors. At the
3: price I'm paying. Don't fall back Don't fall back Don't fall